You're listening to Alternative Thinking, Both Sides of the Coin, a production of the Canadian Association of Alternative Strategies and Assets, where we explore today's markets and alternative investments from two distinct perspectives. Today we're featuring a common equity and a corporate bond manager, both launching funds in the summer of 2009. They both speak to their high conviction investment philosophy and where they're seeing opportunities in their respective markets. James Braun is the president and co-founder of CASA. All opinions expressed during the show by James and our show guests remain their own and should be used for informational and educational purposes only. Find out more about CASA at casa.ca. Welcome. Today is Wednesday, April 22nd. I'm James Braun with CASA, and this is Alternative Thinking. Today we're speaking with Travis Dowell with Maxim Capital Management and Matt Chandro with Fulcra Asset Management. Uh, we'll start with self-introductions. We'll uh, let Matt uh, start. For sure. Uh, thanks for uh, for having me, James. Um, so I've been in the investment business for 25 years, 23 years on the buy side in credit. Um, I've worked at... Uh, uh, big mutual fund company, high net worth family, <clears throat> smaller investment manager, and uh, started Fulcra uh, 11 years ago. Um, so we've been managing money for uh, over uh, 11 years coming up, um, up this year. Uh, the strategy is long only. We don't use any leverage. We hedge our FX exposure, fairly concentrated, deep value approach to investing in North American credit. Well, you picked an opportune uh, time to start. What was that? Something around like 2009? Yeah, actually um, put the uh, registration documents for the company uh, into the BC Securities Commission two weeks before Lehman Brothers filed. So it was... Um, <laughs> Without a doubt, an interesting time to be setting up a business, but uh, certainly prepared us uh, well for the uh, mm-hmm. the period that we're going through right now. Yeah, well, there's been a lot of uh, a lot of great companies that come out of that time, like Spotify and, and Uber and that. So uh, yeah, you know, there's never really a, a perfect <laughs> time to come out, but uh, yeah, we'll, uh, you know, and those both of those shops are going through their their changes now too with the uh, with the COVID crisis. But uh, that's interesting. So you you hedge your FX. And so everything you have, even if it's a U.S. dollar bond, do you hedge it back into, into Canadian for your investors? Yeah, we just want to isolate the credit risk. Uh, so generally, we buy mm-hmm. our bonds in the secondary market. We generally don't buy new issues, although certainly this is a time when there are some mm-hmm. attractive concessions being given buyers. But um, yeah, we just want to isolate that uh, that that risk premium, that spread. And so... Uh, hedge out the FX risk. Right. And then deep value, is it a concentrated portfolio? You have just a few names or what, what's kind of the composition of the of your book there? Yeah, I would say it's pretty concentrated. 20, 25 names drive the performance of the fund. Uh, like our top 10 is almost 50% uh, of the fund. Uh, and one other uh, point to, to, to make would be that we... Uh, try to avoid duration as best we mm. can, at least sort of the traditional interest rate variety. Um, certainly willing to invest um, beyond what has historically been our kind of average duration of two, two and a half years uh, to to realize an outcome, but really want to avoid the interest rate risk that uh, can be associated with investing in fixed income markets. 
In the equity side, uh, Travis, uh, what have you been doing the last uh, the last few years? I think you have a similar similar kind of vintage to uh, to Matt with his fund. Yeah, I've known Matt for for quite a while and had admired him as an investor for quite some time as well. Um, I founded Maxim Capital and launched the Maxim Diversified Strategies Fund back in 2009, also about 11 years ago. I think actually Matt and I founded our mm -hmm. funds, launched them on the exact same day, if I recall correctly, June 30, 2009. Um, you know, before I founded Maxim, I began my career at a boutique investment management firm in Vancouver called MK Wong & Associates. That firm was eventually bought by a bank, uh, by HSBC, where I continued to work for a few years before leaving them to join a family office. And a few hour, years after that, I started Maxim Capital. I was ex you know, super excited to start Maxim Capital in 2009. It's the tail end of the financial crisis, as, as Matt alluded to at the time. Um, I, was, I was excited to take advantage of a still very volatile investment environment and a very beaten up equity market with our value oriented and opportunistic investment style. So the tail end of that, that crisis, uh, did you, did you have an inkling that it was coming to an end? Like was, was I guess things were, I keep my every, every back then, like even like now, you know, a week seems like a year. Um, I guess it, or did you have, <laughs> and did you, when you put out your fund on June 30th, uh, was it just happenstance that it came out then or did you actually kind of, kind of plan that to, uh, to coincide with that or? Yeah, I, I certainly did not have the view that the crisis was coming to an end at that time. Um, you know, nor do I think it necessarily did within those few months. We can all look back with the benefit of hindsight and obviously see when the end of the bear market was or when the, when the rise started. Um, but, you know, our, our style, you know, our, our, our fund strategy in a nutshell is looking for value and also an associated catalyst or event. So the thesis that I came out with to investors at the time and what we were looking to do was not predicated on a, um, a buy and hold strategy or a rising market generating returns for us. It was predicated mm -hmm. on, you know, making good value oriented investments and then the catalysts or events associated with our names that we invested in would, would drive investment performance for us. Cool, and you're you're shorting as well. Do you and you, do you use any uh, derivatives to hedge out the uh, some of the exposures? I, I describe our fund as a as a long short fund, but we are certainly a long bias fund. Uh, the majority of our, our returns, the attribution positive attributions, come from the the long side of the portfolio. We do short securities, but that's not as a, a dedicated allocation. More, it is done so when. Uh, we have a specific thesis on why we think a company may go down uh, in value and price, uh, and therefore we'd benefit from it rather than a as a, a de facto hedge with the portfolio. And we're not big users of, of derivatives uh, in the portfolio. Cool. And then, uh, any sort of cap weighting? Is it small, mid, large, or uh, you're just kind of opportunistic or? We're an all capitalization strategy. Average capitalization of our longs today uh, happens to be just over $4 billion. We've got sub $500 million market cap companies and we have multi-billion dollar market cap companies in, in the fund. So, you know, for us, it's really about a specific thesis on a, on a given name. Uh, so we're agnostic to the market capitalization. But, you know, as a, as a, as a smaller pool of capital, uh, you know, relative to some of the massive funds out there, um, you know, smaller cap, mid cap securities are highly liquid for us. Uh, means we've got a bigger opportunity set that we can go after, which has been, you know, a lot of fun, and we've uncovered some some great hidden gems uh, over the investing years for for our fund. 
Cool. And I guess to Matt, are you in, I guess, corporate bonds? Uh, is there any sort of credit rating that you stay away from? Or is it uh, like, how, how do you find yourself there? Is it, or is it just kind of you're agnostic to that and you're looking more to the, the actual returns and the, the uh, duration? You, yeah, you kind of answered the question there. Um, we are agnostic. I mean, obviously, I respect the credit rating agencies from the perspective that they uh, have access to non public material information, and that obviously gets expressed in in some of their written reports. But the one thing that they're mm-hmm. highly deficient at is determining the value um, and the margin of safety that, that can exist with buying something right. So, you know, they they have a a framework for valuing credit across the globe. Uh, it's applied equally depending right. on the sector that you're looking at, the company, that the, the sector that it falls within. Um, and they have huge influences, obviously, on how big fiduciary capital runs money. Mm-hmm. And we can, you know, arbitrage a lot of those, those structures, those technical uh, impediments um, when something, for example, gets uh, downgraded from investment grade to non-investment grade. Cool. And what do you guys think of the what's been happening lately? Like obviously you, you were born, both of you, uh, both of your funds in the last crisis, 10 odd years ago, 11 years ago. And what's been happening now, we've heard a lot of uh, in a few other podcasts that you know, try to compare it to one or mash them up a couple of crazy times over the last while. But, um, but what, what's your, your view on this and how it's going to affect the economies uh, of I guess Canada and other countries, and also the, those companies. Kind of like who are the winners and losers? Maybe we'll start with uh, with uh, with Matt uh, looking at the uh, the limited upside and <laughs> perhaps unlimited downside. Where, where, what's your uh, uh, headspace on that? Yeah, I think that um, you know ninety nine point nine 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 percent of of uh, financial professionals. Um, and everyone on this planet, for that matter, don't have any experience with what what is driving this exogenous event. And so it's difficult to kind of map out, as it is with most exogenous events. I think the great benefit that we have is that as a, as a credit investor, we're able to buy instruments with a terminal date, a former very popular mm-hmm. company in this country that used to even pay a dividend uh, has a bond outstanding. Uh, that comes due in November of this year that we just recently bought at a 13.5% yield. And it's got it's the only uh, debt on the balance sheet. Uh, they've got more cash than they do debt um, in the company. Wow, that's a great trade. <laughs> yeah, so there's things like that. And it's, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's very technical. There's obviously some force unwinds here and there. Um, certainly for me, March 23rd will go down as kind of a monumental day in my career thus far. We bought some things that day that I would never have thought we would have bought at at, price, at the prices that we paid. So in conclusion, I would just say you want to have some liquidity because the future is obviously very uncertain and we run a mandate that isn't fully invested. So it's it's contemplated in terms of how we run money. Yeah, from from my perspective, I'll, I'll jump in here. I think, you know, today's environment shares some significant similarities with when I launched our fund in 2009 when Matt launched his fund in 2009. And, you know, the obvious similarities are, you know, we've got broken or, or, or deeply uh, markets that have gone through a deep correction. We've got a deep recession uh, in front of us right now. 
uh, with no end in sight and investor confidence is extremely low. No one wanted to invest in anything at that time back in 2009. You know, and history has shown us that's precisely been a very good time to invest. And I don't mean to call a bottom uh, for this market by saying that, but, you know, similarities, I think, I think history often, you know, doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. And, you know, I, I believe the market needs a wall of worry on which to climb higher. And, you know, with COVID, with the coronavirus, uh, we certainly have a wall of worry today. And I think that's quite constructive for equity markets. You know, our philosophy when we started the fund, you know, remains true to what we're doing today. And that's, you know, predicated on value-oriented investing and taking advantage of volatility. So I'm quite constructive on some of the opportunities that, that we're seeing in the market today. Um, and, you know, with a lens out to the, to the future, I think we're going to, I think we're going to look back at this period as being, again, a very good time to be deploying capital. To continue on that, Travis, any specific, uh, opportunities that you're seeing and, uh, like is, is this coronavirus affecting some of your, your portfolio companies in a, in a pretty, uh, like say rather specific way, or is there, is it something that's a bit more broad? You know, first and foremost of what we're doing, again, we're sticking to our, our process, our style. We're not chasing other opportunities that we wouldn't otherwise be attracted to in the, you know, the fullness of a, of a cycle. So we're sticking to our knitting, so to speak. Um, you know, what we've done first and foremost is, you know, as we've moved into and through this, this crisis to where we're at today, we've reviewed all the names in our portfolio with a focus on balance sheets and liquidity, uh, the durability of their business models. And that's really an eye on um, not just who uh, will survive, but what business models and, and specific businesses are likely to, you know, either benefit um, from the potential new normal or the old normal that, that we get back to coming out of this crisis. So, you know, mm -hmm. that's been some of the, you know, the fun things, analyzing and, and thinking about what things look like coming out of this. And I'll give you, you know, one specific example, and it's been a, a long time holding of ours, and I won't get too deep into the weeds on it, but Boyd Group, one of the largest auto collision repair companies in, in North America, um, Canadian company, 85% uh, of their um, revenues derived from their auto collision repair locations in the United States. And if you think about it, traffic on the roads these days is quite a bit less than it was a couple of short months ago um, as yeah. various stages of lockdown for individuals, businesses, et cetera. So, you know, irrespective of if their locations, their repair locations are open or not, um, their business volumes are way down, you know, and a material impact on their business. But, you know, as you look through to the other side, they've got a, they've got a very healthy balance sheet. They're absolutely going to get through this. The stocks, you know, come off quite a bit through this correction. Um, mm. But if you look through to the other side, I'm quite confident that when, when people start driving again, they're going to get in accidents with roughly the same frequency that they did pre-correction. Um, maybe they'll be driving a little faster because they're so anxious to get out for, uh, you know, get out for a beer with some friends or, or to a restaurant that they haven't been able to go to for a while. But, you know, if you look through to the new normal with the idea that we do get past this current environment, which, which I believe uh, we will, um, then, you know, names like that, when you begin va valuing them on a, on a look forward basis, the, the six month, one year period of 2020 during the coronavirus pandemic is going to be a blip. Um, and, and, you know, mm -hmm. that's going to be making its way back to all time highs again. Anything from you, Matt, maybe, uh, 
specifically, like you mentioned new issues. I don't know if there's some new issue bonds that have come out that are particularly engaging and something that you may have not looked at before, but now it's like, huh, well, maybe that is something we're going to take a look, take a, take a look at. Um, we haven't, but we have actually looked at a few. Uh, I mean, it was interesting just to see the Ford, uh, you had Transdime. I mean, there's been a lot of uh, big U.S. low investment grade and bigger high yield issuers come to market. Um, but we mm -hmm. haven't, um, to answer your question succinctly, we have not bought any new issues. Um, but certainly these are being done with some 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 concessions. Um, remember, this is obviously in the context of 10-year treasuries, 50, 60 basis points. So um, the current yield isn't particularly attractive for the duration of, of some of these right now. That's just, you know, that's really just over the last couple of weeks. Who knows what the future holds? I think it's going to be a very interesting Q2 earnings season. And uh, I suspect volatility is going to um, I think things just generally have have run far too fast. This this rally has really been a liquidity driven rally with you know primary and secondary support uh, from the Fed specifically within credit, right? So they mm -hmm. came out with that announcement um, that any company uh, U.S. issuer that was investment grade prior to March twenty second, um, but then has subsequently been downgraded to non investment grade that. That's that is a, a qualifying feature for the Fed to to buy their bonds in the secondary market. So there has been a lot of downgrades thus far, 160 odd billion of the the Macy's, the Kraft Heinz, the Occidentals of the world, um, and there's expected to be another 500 billion uh, still to come in the next six to nine months. Um, wow! And the Fed's liquidity. Uh, pools that they've put in place doesn't change that. That's still going to happen. It's just how it's kind of digested. And so for us, uh, that is a much more attractive opportunity necessarily than maybe what the current new issue environment is is providing, albeit that it's it's more attractive on a relative basis compared to where it's been over the last kind of year to five. Um, but it's it's nowhere near as compelling as a secondary market. So how do you how do you get into that? Like if you look if you see a lot of new names or a lot of names that you'd like to get into, and you have twenty five, um, like twenty five names in your portfolio, do you just add a, add a few more, or you have to like kick out the the one that's not probably going to perform as well? How do how do you manage your your sizing in your book there? Yeah, no, it's a it's a great question, and this this kind of hits on you know duration and return of capital. Like so we have mm -hmm. so we've we had about twenty percent cash at the end of February. Um, and are now down into the kind of high single digits. But a lot of that has um, been deployed into some existing names, but the vast majority into three new names, um, all of which really have a duration of anywhere from, from five weeks to nine to 12 months. I'll mention one, um, this five-week piece of paper. That is uh, Ford Credit Canada. We bought it at a 27.5% yield. Whoa. Yeah, um, so for five-week paper. And that was just simply, you know, taking advantage and being attentive and being able to execute on the situation on that particular day when Ford was technically downgraded um, and and willing to bid. Um, and so, you know, certainly I would say having some experience in a few cycles has, has helped us to to uh, see those types of opportunities and 
and take advantage of them. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, how do you get the, like, how do you get your hands on those bonds? Uh, and I'll probably I'll, I'll pose this to Travis after after your answer. But like, if you, because the stock market has depth of market and stuff, and it's pretty open. But you know, in the bond market, it's like all your stuff you're doing is like a call market, eh? and the banks don't have inventories. So or how do you get, how do you get your hands on these bonds so you can put them in your portfolio? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's an over-the-counter market, obviously, credit is, and I've been in it for well over 20 years now, so familiar with and have the relationships that uh, that allow us to to execute and generally, you know, speak to the traders directly ourselves. Um, so make it as efficient right. as possible in terms of negotiation of uh, a transaction. And and, it, and quite frankly, it's it's not necessarily much of a negotiation in, in, in times like that. You're just throwing out a bid and it's yes or no. Um, but hmm. uh, some days you get hit, and uh, the late late part of March we we're getting hit on some some of our stink bids. And then you own it, and you're happy to have it, which is nice for five <laughs> weeks, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, twenty seven percent annualized, but uh, yeah, yeah, still not bad. Yeah. yeah. How about you, uh, Travis? How about liquidity in your markets? Yeah, I mean, as as I mentioned, we invest across the capitalization spectrum. So you know, with respect to some of our smaller cap holdings, um, you know, we saw liquidity. Uh, lesson uh, to a degree uh, during the mm-hmm. during the depths of the correction for sure, and that's where you know having a good handle on the business that we're invested in uh, and the comfort of continuing to own those business in the face of uh, the price of the business moving around and not necessarily the value of the business moving around um, that we think it's worth uh, gave us some comfort. But you know certainly there was there's quite a degree of of volatility uh, with respect to cash on hand in the portfolio we did come into the into the correction with uh you know we probably had high single digit cash as we came into it which which helped to a degree as the as the markets are moving down but more importantly it enabled us to take advantage of some unique situations that can arise fairly quickly uh during a market dislocation as as matt alluded to one example for Mm -hmm. us would have been an arbitrage transaction that was announced um, in in mid March. Um, you know, an arbitrage is a is a is a strategy allocation in in our portfolio, and you know this particular transaction announced in the midst of of a heavy degree of volatility um, and panic amongst investors in in the market in mid March. Um, you know, was announced. It was a cash deal. The yield to close that we were able to purchase the uh the company being acquired at was was 25 percent, and that's not annualized uh you know the the yield the spread is up quite a bit yeah it's just a you know those kind of things can exist during during market dislocations like this so we we jumped on that one and uh it was a smaller cap um arbitrage transaction uh you know fabulous risk reward profile announced during the covid coronavirus so no material um, carve out for a, a pandemic such as the one that we're we're going under. So great deal, very solid. And you know, with respect to other changes and things we look to do during you know volatile periods like this, I'd describe what we're doing as as optimizing. We always look to have a very good uh, reward to risk exposure uh, overall in the fund. Obviously, looking for you know more reward and less risk. And when you know, when significant market dislocations like this happen, you often see relative risk reward relationships between two different companies, uh, a whole bunch of different companies. Um, those relationships can change materially. So we look to take advantage of that by, um, you know, some people call it 
high grading, we call it optimizing, where we may hmm. reduce a position or sell a different position and move into another name where uh, because of the market dislocation, the reward to risk of that particular investment is is much more favorable. Oh, that's wild. How about your shorts? Because uh, you probably had some stuff in there that would make money as markets generally go down, but it, did some of them do even poorer for them and, and better for you in, the, in this crisis? Or uh, has it, how did it work as a kind of a ballast for your fund? Yeah, I mean, in, in hindsight, I like most, I'm sure, wish I had a, a much larger short book coming into, uh, into March than we did. Um, and again, also in hindsight, you know, we, you know, when, when you have any short positions on and ours are all idiosyncratic in nature, I, I, in, the, in the sense that they are company-specific um, short theses um, and not there uh, it intended to be a broad hedge for our portfolio of course a short allocation does act as a hedge if the if the overall market declines you're you're generally going to be brought on side uh with your position whether the fundamentals deserved it or not so as as the market began uh correcting very quickly in march um a lot of our short positions started working out well for us as you would expect and you know in hindsight we probably covered some of those a little bit early um but you know, fast forward to a month or where we're at today, some of those names are higher than where uh, many of those names are higher than where we covered them. So um, in March, it looked like we covered mm. a bit early, but but now we're we're uh, we're in a position where we're, where we're happy we did with a little bit of a rebound in the market here. But, you know, as mentioned, we're a net long bias strategy. So, you know, we um, expect and and, you know, constantly are speaking with our investors about accepting you know, a certain level of, of market volatility as our investment thesis on a given name and the portfolio as a whole plays out over time. Um, I think as an equity investor, you need to accept, accept some volatility. Managing to a, uh, a low beta or a very low volatile uh, metric, like a low standard deviation metric, you know, mm-hmm. typically over time, that's going to lead to lower or less than fulsome equity market returns. Oh, wow. Um, how about on your side, Matt? Um, volatility is it? Uh, I imagine it's less than equity market volatility. And how? Um, yeah. How, how does how is your portfolio uh, played out? Like if you have low duration, obviously, it probably means I higher coupon stuff. And then you have probably stuff that um, you, know, you bought with a premium, so that's that's amortizing. But uh, how's your portfolio volatility been through the piece here? And uh, generally, how does it? Uh, uh, how volatile does it get? Well, yeah, I mean, this was March was the the biggest negative month for for high yield and and investment grade ever, right? I think in terms of modern finance, uh, we weren't immune, even though we had twenty percent cash going into March. And uh, while we we only own one oil and gas producer, uh, we own a couple of midstream operators because we, even though they're they're rated non-investment grade. Their counterparties are more investment grade of nature. So there's a nice natural ARB there in terms of <clears throat> quality of business. Uh, but all of these positions literally that, you know, we had difficult buying at par at the end of last year were marked down anywhere from 20 to 30 cents. And so, you know, those, you know, running a reasonably concentrated portfolio, those things traded on air. So, you know, the volatility is there um, in terms of the marks in our fund. Uh, the liquidity taking you down there was not particularly high. And in pretty much three of the four 
right now you can't add to the those positions. Um, so and they're still marked anywhere in the mid 60s to kind of 80 range. You know, we certainly have experienced some of that, but historically credit and, and ourselves included don't uh, have nearly as much volatility as equity markets. And and as I said at the outset, we don't mm-hmm. use any leverage, vehemently oppose that kind of concept to, to yeah. making money. And that that's obviously portfolio structure is, is critically important to avoid those those magnified risks that, uh, that that can happen when you do have this type of volatility. Yeah, and you mentioned uh, yeah uh, leverage liquidity. Um, I guess for for both of you, maybe we can stay on that for a second. For, so for your funds, are they daily, monthly liquidity, and um, would there be any reason that you might gate it? Uh, like have we seen a few more of the private funds do that lately, and definitely in '87, I think actually they said there's a fidelity fund, like the money market fund gated. <laughs> Things are kind of weird, especially in the crisis too in 08. So um, uh, what, what are the terms of your offering? And then how, do you, what, what do you think is like the apocalyptic scenario if we haven't already seen it? Um, yeah, well, <clears throat> I mean, we've, it's interesting. I mean, I, and I think it's because we've been doing this for a little while um, and been articulating this to a lot of people, but the reaction from investors uh, the advisor community um, has been pretty positive. Um, we run a prospectus fund and an OM fund, um, and you know I think it sort of speaks to our our relative performance and as well as uh, positioning ourselves well for some some attractive returns over the next uh, couple of years. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, we're not. We haven't sort of seen any like outflows uh, specifically. It's kind of been the opposite, and and I think it's it's mm. kind of a broad thought that high yield is a good place to be, even though we're not the index. But it's a, it's a good place to be uh, post a recovery, and I think you know we're uh, you know a niche uh, player in that, and a little more concentrated, a little more. Um, under the radar from that perspective, which, which can, um, can be an advantage. Um, Cause certainly we don't, you know, need in our opinion, necessarily the market to come back for us to get our money back. Um, yeah. It just matures. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And as long as we've done the work and, <clears throat> and believe in the asset quality and, and, you know, in a lot of cases you'll have private lenders or even private equity that, uh, that will fill that void. Very cool. And how about you, Travis? Yeah, our fund uh, is sold by offering memorandum, has monthly liquidity. So last business day of every month is is, is trade date, buy or sell, um, you know, through keeping in touch with, with our investors in the fund, keeping them updated on, on what we're doing. Uh, we've seen very little redemptions in the fund, nothing, nothing significant. We had a few people adding to their investment in the fund opportunistically, which has been great. Um, you know, one of the things that I think is very important for investors to look at whether they're looking at a fund like Matt's, a fund like ours, mm-hmm. uh, or other funds, is making sure that there is there isn't a mismatch between the liquidity of the underlying assets that the manager is investing in and right. the uh, liquidity parameters of the product itself. You know, for example, a um, you know to to your point, James, having seen some funds gate redemptions or restrict redemptions at this time, you know, those are, you know, typically the ones we've seen in the headlines of late have been 
you know, mortgage or real estate related funds that obviously the underlying assets that the manager is investing in are liquid. And if it's a weekly or monthly liquidity profile for the product, that's a problem when somebody wants their money out. Um, you know, so for us, uh, you know, again, I spoke earlier about being an all capitalization strategy uh, invested in the equity markets. Um, you know, we haven't seen any liquidity issues with, you know, with the fund or, or with our underlying investments. Um, you know, we can, uh, we track a stat on how fast we can liquidate our holdings. Um, and, you know, I think we could liquidate half the fund in uh, like two or three days. Uh, and when we have a monthly wow. redemp redemption parameter. Um, so it's just a comment that, you know, our mm -hmm. fund size relative to the, to the investments we're making, the liquidity of the investments we're making, we've got, you know, a highly liquid portfolio, uh, which I think is great from a risk management perspective. Uh, and it's also good from a from the perspective, again, of, of being able to take advantage of, of investments that some of the bigger funds out there are not able to take advantage of. And that's certainly something we've we've looked to do over time. Very cool. So what's your advice to investors as they go through this? Uh, like you said, you have some that are re-upping or adding more to their positions with uh, the fund positions with you. Uh, but if they, if someone were to come to you and say, Hey, here's my, my statements. I know you're not a financial planner on that, but uh, you know, he, what, uh, what, what's, what's going to happen here? What, what, what do you think, Travis? The core of what I think investors or what's happening now. And I think what investors should take advantage of is, is my belief that volatility creates opportunity. I mean, if the markets in general, they corrected depending on the index you look at, you know, from late February into late March, there was 25, 30, 40% correction, corrections in, in broad indices mm. from large caps to small caps. And, you know, if you believe that in the fullness of time and, you know, times figuring out when is, is the hard part, but if you believe we do get back to, you know, even 90% of normal uh, and investors begin valuing businesses um, on a fulsome basis again, i.e. looking forward in a normal environment, you know, most securities are going to get back to valuations very similar to what they were at before. So the risk of investing after a big correction, I think, is inherently less. Now, our approach, you know, in terms of thinking about volatility, creating opportunity, there's some unique things that happen during big market dislocations. And we're, we're excited about trying to take advantage, just looking at some of the businesses we're invested in and, and doing the work now to, you know, pre and now to figure out, you know, which are not only going to survive, but thrive on the other side. And, you know, their share prices could be, you could say some of them are going to thrive just getting back to normal. And that's a 30 plus percent gain from here just mm. to back to normal. Um, so whether that happens over one or two years, it's either a, you know, it's a 30% gain in one year, or it's a 15% annualized return over two years. And that's not a prediction of where, you know, the market or our fund is going to go over the next little while, because I think it's going to continue to be volatile as we work through a very uncertain time with, you know, the, 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 the coronavirus pandemic, this exogenous shock that we've seen to the, to the world economy, to the way we live today. But, you know, mm -hmm. through the fullness of time, I think, you know, investors taking advantage of panics throughout history, uh, taking advantage of panics throughout history has always been, um, you know, a, a good thing to have done. And I think we'll look back on this period as, as being, you know, a similar type of environment. Right on. Yeah. You sound like a Rothschild. That's fantastic. Uh, how about you, Matt? <laughs> well, I, um, yeah, I know let's share the, the long-term sentiment there, but I would say definitely probably much more of a worrier 
um, than Travis, but, um, (laughs) you know, I just, I think it's, uh, this is, everything's different. This is a lot different than, than 0809. Um, I think consumer behavior, corporate behavior in terms of capital allocations is going to be very different, difficult to map. And this rally in here is sort of pacified everyone a bit. Um, I think, um, is my sense. Um, but I think you have to, investors need to be open-minded and flexible. I mean, I'm not suggesting this by any stretch, but I mean, I think there's been a few people that have even mentioned it in in the press in this country in terms of mm-hmm. Canadian bank stocks uh, and the dividends, you know, like how, you know, would they ever, would, would they ever get cut like they did in the U.S.? I would, I would say in this kind of environment, it seems like perhaps the probability could be higher uh, than it was even back then. Um, um, and so, you know, that's, you know, I, you know, I, that may be something people are thinking about today. I really don't know. I, I would mm. probably suggest otherwise, but I think one just needs to be, you know, aware of your biases as an investor um, and challenge them um, and, you know that's it's it's really really important and and obviously the differing opinion than that I'm going to have you know versus an equity investor is is obviously you need you know ultimately you need sentiment to drive valuations and um, you know that's kind of materially different in terms of you know how we ultimately end up getting paid back and and um, you know clipping uh, a coupon along the way so uh, but I I would just leave it that. Uh, people do need to be open-minded and and also very much respect liquidity in here because it's um, I suspect that this is going to take uh, several quarters if if not years to uh, to map out. Yeah, I hear you. Well, thanks guys, thanks uh, Matt and Travis for your for your time today, and uh, you gave us a lot of great nuggets and the equity and the bond markets uh, in Canada and how to look at companies. And uh, we look forward to having you guys on another uh, podcast sometime uh, again soon. Thank you. Sounds good. Thank you. Thanks, James. Thanks, Matt. Pleasure to be on. Yeah. Likewise, Travis.